welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across cyberspace and always across my heart is the one, the only Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Rich. It's uh, great to be here in the year that is new. <laughs> yes. Uh, 2020 is upon us. There is no escaping it. So what better way to kind of get us caught up on a little bit of the news that happened over the holiday break than a little segment we like to call News or Nah. This is where if we have uh, maybe a few many two stories to cover in uh, extensive detail, I'd like to just kind of run down what the headline is, get Tom's kind of one take reaction to this uh, and find out if it's in fact News now. So first up here, uh, interesting security news. Security researchers at Worcester Polytechnic University uh, in the U.S., not to be confused with the U.K. one, I guess, uh, the University of Lubbock in Germany, and Intel published a report showing that FPGA cards can be used to launch faster row hammer attacks. Uh, please Google row hammer attacks if you need to know what those are. I don't have time to get into the physics of uh, bite flipping and that kind of stuff. The researchers showed an attack called jackhammer, which is kind of just a variant on row hammer, using FPGAs resulted in attacks that were twice as fast and flipped four times as many bits and were much harder to detect. This performance increases because FPGAs connect directly to a processor's bus with direct access to the CPU cache and system memory without having to interact with software layers. FPGA row hammer attacks, Tom, news or not? Uh, not news that FPGAs can do things stupidly fast because that's what we use them for. Um, I think it's kind of novel that people are starting to use FPGAs for things like row hammer attacks. And when you think about it, that's really what they were designed for. Uh, I want to stay tuned to this space. Um, also, I want to see how many more uh, hammer puns we can come up with for attacks. Um, just be careful, though, because if you start naming your attacks Mjolnir, you might get Disney lawyers on your butt. <laughs> Definitely. Disney will start a cybersecurity firm just to stop all of those attacks so they don't get bad marketing uh, based off of that. So what I'm saying is please actually name them uh, after mythical Disney-owned hammers, uh, and then security will be better uh, for it uh, thanks to the, mm -hmm. the mouse monopoly. Uh, next up here, Xerox is still trying to buy HP. Hey, that's a thing. And they announced they secured $24 billion in funding from City. Mizuho, which I'm assuming is some sort of equity fund, and Bank of America to finance the acquisition. HP's board previously unanimously rejected Xerox's offer of $22 per share to acquire HP. Does Xerox having a bag of cash make this news or not, Tom? Yeah, I completely forgot that Xerox even wanted to buy it. Now, I'm assuming this is HP Inc., not HPE. Um, ultimately, what what is this going to get them? Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, okay. They rejected your offer once go back for more money. At some point, someone's going to throw in the towel and go, you're paying too much money. <laughs> or at some point, the lawyer's fees will be enough to actually acquire both companies and they'll be owned by, you know, some, uh, some acquisition law firm or something like that. I mean, I think the, the idea here is to kind of corner the market on like all sorts of printing services and that kind of stuff. And if you read into some of the details about like why Xerox is kind of making the case, they were, they were trying to do basically an investor buyout to kind of back their way into the acquisition here. And it's all, it's all about cost synergies and, and, you know, kind of each, each company operating in a different markets and dominating in those markets and just kind of becoming uh, kind of a, a, a printing titan or something like that. So uh, not maybe not the most inspiring, but uh, maybe still on the table. Uh, something a little bit more science fiction-y, Tom. The European Patent Office recently rejected two patents signed by an inventor named Davos. Davos is an AI developed by Imagination Tech Engines, excuse me, Imagination Engines, consisting of a swarm of many disconnected neural nets, which doesn't sound ominous at all. The Office of the EU rules require 
bear patents originate from human beings, not machines. They, they, you would also say that you can't have corporate ownership of patents, uh, just as a note. And while imagination technologies are, or excuse me, imagination engines argues it should not be limited to natural persons. The EU heading off AI patent trolls. News or not here, Tom? I think this is a great idea. Why would you let an AI file a whole bunch of patents? I mean, have you ever read those horrible, like, schlocky things they post on Twitter of, like, I asked an AI to write a Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> um, yeah, like, this is dumb. Uh, the rules are very clear. You have to be breathing in order to file a patent. I don't try to do an end run around the system or get a court case thrown in. So it, Because you know what will happen. Russian patent trolls will patent all of your stuff. You're opening Pandora's box, and Pandora's box looks like a very small shell script. But what would prevent, uh, you know, the company um, that I mispronounced many times, Imagination Engines, Imagination Technologies was the company that used to make graphics chips for Apple. That's why I'm getting those confused. <laughs> um, if, if they just signed one of their computer scientists, say, okay, now you own the patent or, or something like that, or the CEO of our company now owes these patents that we used uh, you know, this neural net to develop. I mean, what's what's functionally is the difference there? Because you could still kind of brute force your way into a whole bunch of patents and then kind of sift through them and go, uh-uh, you see, we, we had that idea for that new type of Tupperware first. So I'm going to break this down on a slightly nerdy scale for you. Um, what is the difference between applying an access list on the inbound side of an interface and the outbound side of the interface? The difference is, is that if you apply it on the inbound side of the interface, in this case, the you can't be an AI to file a patent, you can just discard things out of hand. <laughs> Guess what? You're not a breathing person. Go away. If you apply it on the outbound side of the interface, the processor actually has to do work to figure out whether or not this is allowed before it's processed. So basically what happens is, is if I allow AI to start filing patents, then my patent examiners, their work, well, I don't know, quintuples, uh, 10x patent examiners, because everyone's going to file the biggest bunch of garbage that you've ever seen in your entire life. And every one of those examiners is going to have to go through this line by line and go, you just tried to patent a dictionary list, not the concept. You just put words in a patent. And so this is a good way to toss it at first, because now let's just say that we have a patent examiner, and I don't know, his name is Richard Strafalino, um, who filed 14,000 patents that are all garbage. I mean, yeah, Richard Strafalino needs to stop trying to file garbage patents. But more importantly, what's at stake here is you've got to follow the process. And yeah, you can put somebody else's name on it if you want, but ultimately it's going to be the same rejection. It'll just be a little slower is all. So what we need is an AI to sort through the bulk of AI patents that are created so that they can only submit the ones that look the best to the patent office. And the patent office needs an AI to automatically detect when it seems likely that a patent was created by AI to detect when that's occurring. And if you can somehow include blockchain in that, I don't know if it'll work or not, but somebody's going to give you about $14 million. Tom, it's a distributed ledger. All right. And finally here on News or Not, Arduino launched a low-code platform and modular hardware system for IoT development. Kind of cool. They're kind of already in that space, but uh, I really like the modular aspect of this. Uh, this was at CES. The Arduino Portenta H7 includes a crypto authentication chip, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth LE, LTE, and narrowband IoT modules. It runs on either a Cortex-M7 or 
M4, 32-bit ARM microcontroller, so pretty familiar stuff for Arduino. It runs ARM's mm -hmm. embed OS and supports Arduino code, Python, and JavaScript, so all of the heavy hitters there, at least the last two. It's meant for designing industrial applications, edge processing solutions, and robotics. It's available to beta testers now and coming to all in February. I know Arduino has a, certainly has a strong hobbyist uh, uh, uh uh, presence, Tom, but I, I, you know, I really see this having some big application. You know, talking about industrial development uh, for IoT, some really useful stuff could be coming out of this. Yeah, I, I actually am kind of, uh, I'm good with this Arduino thing. Uh, modular is always better, especially for some of the stuff that you use Arduinos for. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're not going to build a, you know, a Minecraft circuit board out of an Arduino. Uh, so if you could get a bunch of them together and join them together to have, like, you know processing power and stuff like that. I mean, if nothing else, it teaches kids how to build functional or functions inside of a programming system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, this one over here handles the time and this one over here handles this. So you don't have to, to build one gigantic monolith. Um, you know, ultimately, is it going to go anywhere? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, I, I've never seen Arduino as a substitute for purpose-built equipment. But for people that want to play around with things and, you know, like do those old little spy kid things where you can see, you know, is anybody going to walk up to my front door? Eh, that's not bad. You know, I, I could definitely see this being, you know, another step in the the move from that hobbyist space into, you know, maybe uh, some more business development or, or a company, you know, uh, uh, licensing the designs from Arduino and then using using this kind of modular system to build more more specific stuff. And I can think of a number of uh, enterprise companies that have done fairly similar stuff with kind of off the rack hardware hardware and that kind of stuff. So, so interesting stuff. Uh, first up here, I guess that was a mini discussion there. Uh, first up, though, on our full discussion here, Lenovo announced something interesting at CES. It's uh, something called the ThinkSmart View, a smart display that runs Microsoft Teams, essentially an audio video conferencing device that's more affordable than similar enterprise solutions. The view starts at $349. It'll also sell it to you uh, with a bundle with Bluetooth headphones so you can use it in open office, uh, otherwise known as, a, I guess, a non-productive office for $449 and launches later this month. Microsoft has been encouraging this expansion. Microsoft has to be encouraging this expansion into hardware uh, for Lenovo to kind of get the blessing to do this. They're a key partner for Microsoft. I, I, I imagine they're not doing this willy-nilly. Is Teams next target WebEx with this kind of hardware, Tom? Yes. I mean, uh, that's really what it is. Um, although I, I have to stop for here for a moment. So Microsoft, you uh, you took your unified communication software platform and you installed it on a purpose-built device. You built a phone. Congratulations. <laughs> Granted, it's a video phone. But um, yeah, that, well, when you think about it, when you use Teams as an integrated c communications platform, I mean, this is where Cisco has been playing for years with WebEx and whatever they called the stuff before it became WebEx Teams, you know, Jabber or some kind of unified communications client. I mean, I like the idea. Um, the problem is, in a nutshell, um, having a $350 device on my desk is not as convenient as being able to take a call on my iPad. I mean, there are pros and cons to both, but I promise you, given the opportunity, people would rather just install the software on whatever mobile device they have now and use it because it's always with them as opposed to having to go back to my desk to take a Teams call. Yeah, and especially since that functionality isn't exclusive to that, it'd be one thing if Microsoft was launching like this team, you know, Teams video calling or something like that with this device. But yeah, if you could already do that with your phone, I, I do think there may be some 
maybe some instances where this could get some sort of compliance certification. So, you know, it's considered more of a trusted device than a phone or something like that. But for, you know, relatively small offices that don't, that, that it's just not feasible. You know, the, the Gestalt IT team is a perfect example. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, like that, that giant like WebEx robot that has multiple cameras that follows people everywhere and stuff like that. It just doesn't make sense for a smaller team. Whereas something like this, this is a one-time hardware buy. And again, the argument with teams is always, hey, you're, buying Office 360 anyway, you're going to pay for the subscription no matter what, might as well use Microsoft Teams. Seems to me like a decent price point, it, you know, if the if the functionality is there, if it's something you don't have to worry about charging, it's something that's always just going to be on the conference table. Uh, I, I could see this, uh, you know, for uh, small and medium-sized businesses, maybe finding a niche and uh, certainly kind of it's, uh, eating at the margins of WebEx. Certainly isn't attacking their largest corporate customers by any stretch. Yeah. All right, next up here, uh, CCPA went into effect uh, over the new year, went into effect January 1st. That's California's Consumer Privacy, uh, excuse me, California's Consumer Privacy Act, uh, CCPA, if you're not familiar. It now requires companies to notify users of intent to monetize data and offering ways to opt out of that monetization. Users can request copies of their data as well as request that their data be deleted. Businesses must disclose what info they collect and for what purpose and with whom they share it. Uh, there's going to be a six-month uh, kind of trial here or a grace period or whatever you want to call it that expires June 30th, uh, where after that point, they're really going to start uh, kicking up enforcement and AKA fines. Uh, there's also going to be some volunteer uh, directory pages where consumers can opt out of data collection, which I think is interesting. We're already starting to see the first fruits or the first results of this legislation going into effect. You may have noticed a ton of apps updated uh, over the new year, uh, surprisingly with some new privacy policies. might want to check those out. Mozilla did something interesting, though. Uh, as of January, 7th, users of Firefox can now request that Mozilla delete Firefox telemetry data stored on servers directly from within the browser. This includes information like browser tabs, uh, what browser tabs were open, and the length of the sessions, just the number of tabs. It doesn't actually give any information on the content of those tabs. Just want to be clear on that. Uh, according to Mozilla VP of Global Policy, Trust, and Security, Alan Davidson, the browser industry doesn't consider telemetry data to be personal information, so it's not even clear if it's covered by CCPA, uh, but basically just said... Uh, it just feels right in, given this ecosystem to do this. I think it's an interesting approach by Mozilla. It's like, hey, let's just be overly careful. We're not really getting much value out of this telemetry data anyway. So if you want to delete it, uh, go ahead and do so. We're going to make it easy for you to do so. Is that going to be one of the, the most positive effects of, of CCPA, of, of companies questioning why they're collecting this data to begin with and just giving consumers the, the ability to opt out of it? Or is maybe that too technical to expect from the bulk of consumers? It's too moral to expect from companies to do that. I mean, my first thought when you said that was, how dare you, Mozilla, think about the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law? I mean, I, I noticed that CCPA is definitely in force now because, you know, that little pop up at the bottom of your screen that makes you accept cookies thanks to GDPR. Well, now I have one coming down from the top of my screen saying, you know, opt out of monetization here. So obviously it's working. And yes, I got so many emails over the break of, uh, you know, updates to privacy policies that I seriously thought that privacy policy wanted to connect with my network on LinkedIn at one point. That's how many emails I got. Um Ultimately, this is the thing. This is not going to solve problems. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. It's January. What are we on now? January the 8th. Um, six months from serious enforcement. This is not going to solve your privacy problems. And the reason why is because of things like what Firefox said. Telemetry data isn't technically PII, so we don't have to disclose it. 
we're going to do it because we're nice people and we're not jerks like those guys over in Mountain View who run that other browser that is, you know, uh, shiny. Um, this is a problem of awareness. CCPA is not going to fix your problems. What it's going to do is alert you that you have them. And ultimately, I don't know what the solution to that problem is going to end up being because for every thing that we come up with, you know, every time Apple comes up with a way to hide identifying information in Safari, somebody comes up with a way to go around it. Every time Google decides that they want to, you know, remove ad blockers from the, the Chrome store, guess what? A whole bunch of new advertising waves come out. This CCPA is going to tell you that people are st storing your data. What you're going to do with it is up to you. But unfortunately, the majority of people who are watching the show aren't going to care because they've already used something to opt out of all of this. This is going to be targeted at my mom or, you know, all of my relatives who are not technically focused, who just click accept on whatever they have to click accept on so that they can watch the dancing cat gif. <laughs> Yeah, that that's the one thing I've seen in comparison to a lot of uh, the more European uh, focused privacy laws is a real focus uh, when it comes to enforcement on not allowing people to make that easy choice, like not auto checking the box to, you know, to get to give approval for cookies or whatever like that and, and making people consciously opt, you know, like make a choice uh, one way or the other, at least, you know, theoretically be it an informed choice. Maybe that would be the one uh, one of the flaws I see in CCPA. But uh, like you were saying, uh, not solving problems, but by having. Uh, uh, companies like Mozilla, which, you know, uh, maybe look at themselves a little bit more as uh, uh, stewards of an industry or stewards of a technology or something like that, offering something like this does provide, um, you know, a relief to consumers in that they can see, you know, by Mozilla offering to take this away, they're seeing what companies, what other browser companies theoretically aren't offering this. And if there are other companies in other areas of, uh, uh, you know, uh, other consumer facing products uh, doing the same, even if they're smaller players, maybe don't have the same reach as, as you know, big industry, uh, you know, as Google or Microsoft or something like that, uh, that can help motivate some change. Uh, you know, again, that's that's my uh, my Linux hippie uh, hat getting put on there and, and hoping for the best that the that the Internet will solve problems. Yay. Uh, oh, hey, the Internet's going to solve problems. The problem is, is that these things are still being run by corporations who are beholden to profit margins and shareholder value as the overriding concern. And I promise you, if Facebook and Google look at you as a dollar amount, as a revenue stream, as opposed to a person, they don't care. Something I do care about, though, modular PCs. Uh, that's a transition. I'm going to stick with it. We talked about modularity <laughs> before, and Tom, you said modularity is almost always good. Let's see if that's true. At CES, Intel showed off the Intel Nook 9 Extreme, which is still, I guess, named by a 13-year-old, but whatever. It offers a modular approach to their diminutive desktop line, which I think is really interesting. This uses a removable compute card. It looks like it's connecting over something like a PCI connection. I don't think that's actually, I think it's a little bit more high speed than that, which allows for CPU, RAM, and NVMe storage to be upgraded independently. Effectively, you just take this card out of the little nook and you can take off two screws and kind of upgrade each component as you see fit. There's also a PCI uh, express slot for discrete graphics as well. There's some space constraints, but it's there. 
Uh, we're see- we've are we kind of seen the nook in some interesting enterprise use cases uh, up till this point. Uh, most recently, we've been uh, talking a lot on Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day, talking about scale computing, putting an entire HCI appliance in one of their HE150 devices, which I think is really interesting. Does adding modularity and configurable I.O., which is uh, another significant first, I think, for this nook line, open this to a whole new range of use cases, Tom? Yeah, I think it does. And a lot of people I know use these things for a variety of different things. You know, maybe it's a PF Sense box acting as their firewall. Maybe it's a virtualization cluster for their lab. Um, I know some people use them as just like as Plex boxes. I mean, I have a Mac Mini sitting right here that's serving out, you know, time machine backups and things like that. But it's getting kind of long in the tube. It's seven-year-old hardware at this point. Would I like to go in and upgrade that thing? Well, yeah, I would. But ultimately, I mean, when you think about a Mac mini, it's kind of like the old Nux where there's not a lot you can do to that. If you want to get in there and get creative, there's not a lot of space. Having the ability to modularly modularly slip in and out products to, you know, add RAM, add hard disk space, that's great. It increases the longevity of the boxes and it keeps them sticky in an environment. So I'm not just going out and going to Newegg and finding the cheapest box that I can because I need to upgrade my firewall this week. Also, if this had been named by a 13 year old, it would have been named the Intel um, XX Extreme 96969XX box. <laughs> Too true. And I have some AIM screen names uh, that would bear that. <laughs> Uh, what, what I think is, you know, the potential for this is interesting. You know, I, like I said, I mentioned scale computing. I also think of a company like NetBees. They use Raspberry Pis, you know, for some of the mm-hmm. client-side network monitoring and stuff like that. And the idea of using that consumer hardware and kind of repurposing that. But at, you know, an enterprise scale, you could theoretically form a partnership with Intel, get them to, you know, throw in stuff from the factory, have these automatically configured um, and, you know, kind of deployed, you know, with a software hardware solution, something like that. And having that PCI spot, you know, everyone thinks, oh, great, I can put graphics now in this really tiny uh, uh uh, you know, little desktop, and that's great for the consumer market. But we were just talking about FPGAs, other accelerator cards, opens up a lot of different use cases in a very tiny energy efficient footprint. Very, very interesting. I could see a lot of SMBs uh, giving that a look. And our final story for today, uh, talking about Google's Project Zero. They're trialing new disclosure rules in 2020 over the next 12 months. Previously, the project gave organizations 90 days to patch bugs before disclosure, but would publish the bug reports earlier if the patches were already out there. The new rules would wait the full 90 days, only publishing earlier with a mutual agreement. Incomplete fixes will be reported to the vendor and kept under that same original 90-day deadline, rather than up a separate bug report. Uh, In some of the articles I was seeing, this was a major source of confusion for a lot of companies because they were kind of being applied. Each person at Project Zero was kind of having their own set of rules for whether to open a new report, give them a new 90 days, keep them to the old 90 days, and this sets a universal policy. The goal of the rules is not just to uh, spread uh, to speed patch development, but improve adoption as well. Project Zero has definitely had an impact on patch speeds. I think they said in 2014, the average time was close to, it was over six months, and we're seeing that obviously within a 90-day window is considerably shorter. Will these new rules help improve their reputation, Project Zero's reputation, with vendors uh, who, you know, kind of look down on the company for maybe publishing uh, these bug reports a little too early? Yeah, I think that that's pretty fair because this is the deal. Look at a lot of the, the major vulnerabilities that have happened over the last, I don't know, decade. It's not machines that are on the cutting edge that get, you know, get exploited. It's not the, the you know, the systems that, you know, we, we patched these five a month ago. It's the machines that you can't patch or that are difficult to patch. I mean, look at ATMs. They're still running Windows XP for 
for heaven's sakes. Um, this is this is helping close the vulnerability window by saying, you know what, we don't have to patch everything today. I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of dumb when you say, okay, you have 90 days to release this uh, a patch, and then we'll tell everybody about it the day after the patch comes out. And then you think about people in the enterprise, and they have a rule: we don't install patches until we have to. And you're telling me that I have 48 hours to install this patch? Not going to happen. At least now, if you hear about a vulnerability, I think what needs to happen is um, vendors need to notify their customers the minute they get notified there is a vulnerability. Hey, things are on fire. We're working on putting it out, but be ready because when we tell you it's time, it's time. Roll these patches out. And then on day 89, hey, have you patched yet? Because we're going to be releasing details on this tomorrow and your stuff's going to be burned to the ground if you don't have a patch on it right now. Because as soon as these vulnerabilities come out, assuming that you're not dealing with some kind of um, underground teams that already have knowledge of them, you know what happens? Everybody starts scanning for these things. Shodan creates a new entry on their website for your busted stuff and you can go look at it. Uh, there was a disclosure vulnerability from a Fortinet uh, hardwired SSH key that came out yesterday. And the guy who had it sat on it for six months. Nobody made any progress. So he's like, well, I've done my due diligence, released it. And then the next thing you know, people are trying to backdoor into these Fortinet devices. So, I mean, you, you it's to me, it adds a little bit of responsibility. It's like, I'm not going to leave the sharp knife next to the baby. I'm at least going to tell you, hey, there's a knife next to the baby. You probably need to come take a look at this. Yeah, I think these new rules do a really good job or, or, or try to do a better job of living with the reality that a lot of businesses, enterprises, organizations, whatever you say, have just a ton of inertia when it comes to this. Justifiably so for uh, for for a lot of different reasons. However, when it comes to security, it's a major detriment and and giving them theoretically more advanced time between you know, just kind of shooting out uh, an, an error to the world at large versus, you know, more controlled disclosures. Admittedly, there's some problems there that, you know, if if that gets out into the wild, maybe that causes some problems down the line. However, if that were to happen, there's still that provision that by mutual agreement, you could disclose early. So I guess, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, has the same effect. So what will be interesting is after the 12 months, if they decide to keep this, if they learn uh, maybe to, to put some more refinements on this, and uh, if ultimately this will you know, further narrow the time uh, that people are able to patch and, and hopefully deploy uh, uh, down the road. All right. Well, that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Tom, thank you so much. Uh, happy New Year to you, buddy. And where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Networking Nerd. Um, you can head over to gestaltit.com. Just search for Tom. Um, I have lots of articles. I've got a few that are publishing this week. Um, uh, I was on vacation, but I was still doing briefings and other kinds of things. So there should be some more great content headed your way soon. Absolutely. And you can find uh, my stuff at gestaltit.com uh, as well. I almost forgot the name of the website there for a second. Uh, but... Uh, I want to uh, tell everybody to check out, we published a, uh, a podcast uh, on Christmas Eve to kind of give you something to listen to. But if you didn't check it out, it's a really great discussion that Tom actually moderated, uh, looking about uh, at the, you know, whether if you're coming into IT, whether there's more value in a college degree or pursuing perhaps certifications with the money and time that you would spend for that. Really great discussion with a lot of interesting perspectives. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, Gestaltit.com slash podcast for all of our podcasts there, or to search for Gestalt IT in your podcatcher of choice, and you will find it there 
there as well. We'll be back next Wednesday, uh, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, streaming to you live on Facebook, later on YouTube, running down the IT News of the Week. Until then, for me, for Tom, for everyone here at Gestalt IT, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.